Welcome to BitSplitting with Daniel Jalkut. My guest is Jason Snell, Editorial Director at IDG and host of the incomparable podcast on 5x5. Today's show is sponsored by Microsoft's Windows Azure Mobile Services, a scalable and secure backend for your iOS app. Welcome back to BitSplitting. My guest this time is Jason Snell, the editorial director at IDG, a company that many of us know best for their uh, stewardship of publications such as Macworld, where Jason happened to be the editor-in-chief for uh, quite a long time. He's also the host of the Incomparable podcast on 5x5, among many other things which we will get into, at least some of them, during the course of this show. Welcome to BitSplitting, Jason. Daniel, it's great to be here. Well, I'm really glad to have you on the show. And um, it's nice now that I've been doing the show for a little while. Uh, folks tend to come into it with a little better idea of how the show goes down. In your case, you make it a little easier in my mission to go into sort of some of the background and personal histories uh, of guests because you have done a, a great job of writing about your own personal histories and things that are outside the scope of, of pure technology. Um, in, the, in the last year in particular, you wrote uh, in one of, uh, one of the earlier article, one of the early, earlier issues of the magazine, uh, How He Met My Mother, which was an article about the, you know, really in retrospect, unlikely set of circumstances that led your father to meet your mother. And obviously, when you look at stuff like that, it uh, as the child of that relationship, it always comes down to how you came to exist. Uh, so I learned from that article, not only a lot of interesting details about how your folks met, but that um, you really, you really have a long time, a lifetime um, residency in the greater San Francisco, Central California area. Yeah, I mean, more more or less. I grew up up in the up in the foothills. Uh, about it, it took us about three hours to get to San Francisco Airport. I would say is might might be the way to think of it. Um, so my parents met in the Bay Area. Um, my mom's from Pennsylvania, but she was working as a nurse in San Mateo County, and my dad was living in San Francisco, working as a night watchman um, at the Victor Equipment Company, which is actually um, like a block and a half away from Moscone. Uh, today that building it's still wow. there um and which is just funny in, in in retrospect working in that neighborhood for a decade that that um he worked there and my mom used to visit him there but i was born in oakland and when i was five months old we moved up into the into the foothills so i wasn't a bay area resident until i went to grad school in berkeley in uh 92 Okay. So um, the story, folks should go back and read it. You can find it on uh, Jason's uh, personal blog, uh, um, which is uh, jsnell.intertext.com. But you republished the article there from the magazine for folks who aren't subscribers to the magazine. Right. And it's a great story because um, it sort of reveals you know, elements of your dad's youthful behavior that many, many, <laughs> many people might think were not becoming of a, a wholesome young man. Obviously, he uh, met, uh, for folks who didn't read it, he met your mom uh, while he had uh, a wife and kids. And yes. um, 
uh, the rest, as they say, is history. But um, uh, the it puts things <laughs> in perspective. The, I mean, I think all of us are, are uh, if you really think about it, the unlikely um, chain of events that leads to us. Uh, you know our parents meeting and and us being born uh in my case it it feels slightly more unlikely you know and i didn't realize that until i was maybe 16 or 17 when i did the math of how old my brother was and how right uh what year my parents said they met and i realized that my parents met before my brother was born and yeah my dad was married and his wife and his uh daughters were off in southern california visiting her family and he was chatting up this uh, blonde girl he met on the beach at Half Moon Bay. And uh, that, that's the fact is that my mom was the other woman. And um, and uh, that was an interesting place to start. And I always said that at the time, it probably seemed quite dramatic and, and uh, uh, strange. Um, but the bottom line is that my parents were together for almost exactly 50 years so i guess in the end it was the right decision but it certainly was not without a whole lot of drama and a whole lot of fallout from my for my brother and two sisters uh who ended up being children of divorce so i mean it wasn't it's great for me because i came into being yay but uh you know there were a lot of ramifications that i didn't at all understand when i was a little kid just having my brothers and sisters come to visit right well uh jason when you wrote that article of course you were it was in the context of um you know you narrated the story in the context of being in arizona with your parents and at the time your mother had a pretty serious health scare um and then i was sorry to hear a few months later actually that your your father did pass away earlier this year um, so I'm uh, I'm sorry that uh, you lost him this year, but you wrote about that as well uh, on your blog and described you you came you can you kind of came back around to some of these interesting you know facts of his life and described his life as a story and as a good story. Um, one of the things that str- that kind of popped out as a question for me in the story of your dad's life as I know it so far is how he went, or what the circumstances were of going from being that victor night watchman uh, in San Francisco to being an orthodontist with a seemingly pretty specialized yeah. practice. <laughs> was, he, was he going to school while he was working in San Francisco there? Yeah, he had a, he had a, funny, uh, he had a funny history. He was, um, he was in the Army at one point, um, and then he went to City College of San Francisco. Um, and I think that's what he was working at as the Night Watchman was when he was at, at CCSF. And then, uh, and then he transferred to UC Berkeley and got his bachelor's degree and applied for the dental school program at UC San Francisco and got in. So it was during that period of time where he was already married and had, you know, and, and was having kids that he was also um going to school and uh, you know and, and you're right this a lot of this stuff didn't you know i didn't really hear about some of these details until my mom was in the hospital and my dad and i were driving back and forth between their house and in, in uh way outside of phoenix in the hospital which was more centrally located in phoenix um you know i actually think that had something to do with my my dad's divorce is that um he married young and when he wasn't particularly educated and i think he put a lot of effort into getting this education and bettering himself and getting a better job and getting a better career and he ended up getting his 
you know, being a doctor uh, of, of, you know, dental science. So DDS, which is, you know, he was Dr. Snell at that point. And I, my mom was a nurse, you know, she had her master's degree in public health. And, um, and it's not to say his first wife was a, t- was a, a teacher, but I, I, I don't know. There was something in the, that dynamic and I, it's hard for me to say at such remove that, that he was changing his life. Uh, and the education was part of what he was doing and changing his life. And, um, and that went along with this other life change where he he met somebody else and he ended up moving and starting a new family and all of that but but yeah it was it was not your usual path i mean he was uh born in the depression and his parents moved around a lot and 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 his dad had trouble finding work and his dad was a very educated smart man but um, I think was pretty self-destructive in a lot of ways. Um, and so my dad didn't have that kind of go to college right out of high school kind of thing. He was in the army and then he was in junior college and all of that um, before, you know, at the age of um, almost 40, I mean, in his mid to late 30s, becoming an orthodontist and uh, and then having a practice in the Bay Area in the suburbs in Walnut Creek and leaving that behind and moving up into the foothills with my mom and and me when I was a little baby and just leaving the entire that entire part of his life behind. So it's definitely a a a unique uh interesting story. He he took he took all sorts of paths that were not um what you'd expect. And that's how I ended up growing up where I did in the strange strange uh you know small town uh environment that I did. It, it's you know which was great i have i have no complaints about it other than I, there, we had horses and i don't like horses very much but <laughs> that's another podcast yeah well uh you know it's funny i grew up in santa cruz i think you know that um and and yes. the, but the my shame is i didn't i had to google i had to look on google maps for where sonora california <laughs> actually is lots of people think it's sonoma which is the wine <laughs> right. country which is which is north of the golden gate bridge about an hour but it's not it, it, it's uh it's where it's in the gold rush country it's where they struck gold in in 1849 and ever, the world rushed in as they say um and at one point uh, there's actually a state historic park that's right about an hour, uh, about a mile from where I grew up, and I went to the elementary school there. And it's a it's an in, intact gold rush town called Columbia, and it was at one point one of the largest cities in California because it was full of miners. And then you know eventually the gold rush ended, and most of the people left, and you ended up with this sort of rolling hills. 2000 feet elevation uh it's not even suburban it's just out in the country and that's and that's where i am so it's 100 miles due east is where i grew up uh due east of san francisco um definitely it was an hour drive to the shopping mall in which was in modesto teeming metropolis of modesto so it was out there it was definitely i, I wasn't growing up in in the woods but pretty close pretty right. close uh, well you were definitely close to a lot of california's natural beauties but uh far away from some of the uh reputed california cultural stuff yeah i i my my california childhood was not a surfing and beach childhood it was not that it was you know hills and trees and uh maybe uh, you know a boat on a on a reservoir or skiing up in the, the mountains about 45 minute drive but definitely not a surfer kind of the stereotypical california right. Uh, childhood did not that was not mine well, of course i grew up in santa cruz and also managed to escape that stereotypical uh, <laughs> and you were right there and i was right there so jason one of the things that caught my eye reading uh the the article you wrote for the magazine about your mom and dad meeting was your um 
a part of the unlikely story of your dad sort of like tracking down your mom trying to get a date with her was noticing that she had a Corvair and then I think kind of cruising she, he learned about her that uh she worked in in uh, the health industry um and then cruised around the Bay Area, I guess, uh, looking... Well, I think he, he knew she worked in San Mateo County, so I think he was looking in, like, the public health department parking lot Okay, in San Mateo, and which was funny because she wasn't usually there, but she was there once a week or something like that, and he spotted her car. And um, in those days, <laughs> privacy wasn't apparently an issue. You, you actually put your taped your registration in the window or had it visible on the dash, and so he was able to find out her name just by looking at the windshield of the car. Right. And then and then from there, I mean, that's how he knew to call her. So um, he definitely put some legwork in on that. It's kind of hard to believe it wouldn't work like that today. But but back in back in the day, um, you could actually do that. And he did put in the effort. And I asked my mom later um, what her memory was of her first meeting with him. And she said he was interesting, you know, and she, she thought about telling him who she was and giving him her number, but she didn't. <laughs> and then he went and found her. And so, and, you know, the rest was history. One of those things where uh, she was, uh, as, as it would turn out, she was primed for being more receptive later, I guess. Yeah. Um, she was giving it a second know, thought, I think. <laughs> I don't know if I ever told you this, Jason, but I used to own a 1962 chevy corvair convertible so uh i've you know i probably drove uh my corvair on some of the same bay area Mm -hmm. roads that your mother did uh at the right at the at the correct time for the car um did the did the corvair end up surviving in your mother's uh possession no no that that was that was gone and then she had a oh what did she have after that she had another funny little uh sporty car for a little while and my sister ended up buying that from her and you know my childhood i remember i remember her driving big ugly sedans but but she did have that corvair which i didn't even know about i was i was writing the story and i asked what car it was and uh and my mom and dad were both like oh it was the car it was that corvair uh that (laughs) blue corvair i think Um, mine was blue too yeah so I think I actually may uh, may have owned your mother's may, Corvair. You may have owned the car, uh, sure. Unless it unless unless you have a story about it going off some uh, cliff and an untimely demise or something. Um, but uh, so you ended up. Uh, I know that you were born in Oakland, but you ended up, as you said, growing up in Sonora. Um, are all of your were you in Sonora early enough that all of your childhood memories are? from that area yeah yeah i uh when i was five months old uh my parents moved to groveland which is again why my father got the idea of moving there that would it's a it's on the way to yosemite on highway 120 it's the last town you go through um when you're coming to the north entrance of yosemite um and there's nothing there there was a golf course and there was a little development but there really was nothing there um and then when i was yeah, probably it was probably about a year later that he saw this uh, this property, this old house that it was practically falling down in uh, outside of Sonora, and he thought it would be perfect. And then they fixed it up, and um, so when I was probably two, two and a half, something like that, we moved there, and that's the house I grew up in. And 
uh, lived there until I went off to college and that they lived in until they sold it in 97 and retired. So, um, so yes, essentially, with the exception of a couple memories that might or might not be real from Groveland, really my entire childhood memory is of growing up in that, in, in, you know, on the corner of Parrots Ferry Road and Highway 49 in, in Sonora. Wow, so you really had that small town um, experience uninterrupted, it sounds like, for your childhood. And um, I, when I was, uh, I'm about five years younger than you. I grew up in, uh, uh, mostly in Santa Cruz, but before that I grew up in a, a similarly small town in far northern California near Mount Shasta. And um, in 19, I guess, so I, I was born in 1975. What town did you grow up so, in? Was it Weed? Uh, well, it's funny. Funnily enough, I did live in oh. Weed at, at one point. Um, my my uh, cousin's uh, my cousin's dad, my aunt's uh, ex husband, lived in Weed for the last fifteen twenty years of his life. So, oh really? Yeah. Okay, yeah. See, California's I, I, not I, that small a place. It's it's not. No, it actually, there are, it's huge, but yeah. These are we're going through a, a list of all of the towns <laughs> that nobody has heard of in California. <laughs> But I, I mostly grew up for my most of my memories from that early childhood up there was in a little town called Dunsmuir, yeah. which um, has actually some funny connections to some other folks we know, like uh, Craig Hockenberry's grandparents lived there, and so he used to take the train up there to uh, to hang out with them in the summers. But uh, more more California backroads uh, insider business there. <laughs> uh, but but what I was uh, sort of leading leading towards was um, I don't know the history of California's public schools and their funding of computers, etc. But by the time I got to kindergarten in a California public school in the small, small town in far northern California, um, they did have some computers. Um, I can imagine that five years or so earlier, which I think is about our age difference, um, you didn't really have uh, computers from the get-go yeah. in your in your public schooling, or did you go to public school? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Um, yeah. It was uh, yes, Columbia Elementary School went there for nine years, K through eight. Um, wow, and it's yes, my memory is that the first computer that we had in school was probably in fifth grade, so you know, five years ish is about right. Um, and it wasn't even, I don't think it was even an Apple II. I think it was like a Commodore pet, but my, my best, yeah. my best friend in elementary school, um, was named Crispin, Crispin Holland. And his dad was a school teacher at the, at the elementary school. Um, and he was really into computers and I went, we went, <laughs> He piled a bunch of computer enthusiast kids into into his car, and we went to the West Coast Computer Fair, which, again, that's like a three-hour drive each way. <laughs> but I remember that very clearly going there, and that's the first time I ever saw a Mac. I think it was like the 84 or 85 West Coast Computer Fair. But he was the one who made sure there was a computer around at that school, uh, first the Commodore Pets and then the Apple II, and there was a computer club and... Uh, you know, it's really because of, of Chuck Holland that I got interested in computers at all. And, uh, and, and you know, his, his son was my best friend, and they had an Apple II at home. And, um, and yeah, that was, that was the start of it. So I, I remember very, very much uh, messing around on those computers. And then we, got a, we actually got a Commodore Pet when I was in fifth or sixth grade, and then I got an Apple II when I was in high school. So, um, you know, definitely the computers came in a little bit later. Um, and it was, you know, whatever, 1980, 
80, 81 when I first really um, set eyes on a computer. Right. And uh, something that I haven't mentioned about you is, you know, I mentioned that obvious, your obvious connection to the computer and tech world, um, but you're sort of one of those people who, uh, in addition to being in the computer tech journalism world, you actually have a um, significant journalistic background um, that I think was not necessarily connected to technology. Um, I I know that when you went to um, your undergraduate, you got your undergraduate degree at UC San Diego, and you got a, a BA in communication, right. and you were also there involved in the um, UCSD Guardian. How you, you were th- are researching like crazy. Yes, that is, uh, yes, Your Honor. All of these, fa- all of these statements are true. <laughs> you confess. I, it's, confess it's true. No, I was, I was the, um, I was the editor in chief of the college newspaper, um, uh, which is actually all where I started using Macs regularly. They had Macs. They did all their layout on the on the Mac. I could type really fast. I still can. And people in those days, um, there were it was file interchange was really hard. Most of them, a lot of people had the 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 big five and a quarter inch floppy disks and and there were you know pc formats and mac formats and so i did I, first job i did for them was typing things in people would just bring printouts or things they wrote on a typewriter not even on a computer and i would just sit there with the manuscript and a and an se and just clickety clickety click i put it in and then i realized that as i was going i was editing the work <laughs> i was editing it so it was better and they said you should be an editor and then they made me an editor but um yeah i, I always I think if I think if you knew me in high school, you would have said the two things that he's really interested in are media things, video, radio, newspaper, writing, stuff like that, and computers. Those are the two things that he's into. And I fortunately have, and that's been pretty constant in my life since I was in elementary school, that writing and things around media and computers were the, and technology, those are the two things I was interested in. I've been very fortunate because to this day... I'm still doing those two things. Now, when you talk about uh, your interest in communication, journalism, technology, computers, and the time that you grew up, it begs the question for me, do you have a ham radio license? No, no, never did that. Ne- never never knew anybody who did that. Never did anything like that. I, I, My big things were, I mean, I think the big thing that I did was I ran a BBS when I was, when I was in elementary school and high school i i my apple II, i turned into or so i guess high school i turned into a, a bbs a bulletin board computer bulletin board back before we had the internet we just had computers that had a modem and answered the phone and you'd call and log in and then when you were done you'd hang up and somebody else would call and log in and leave messages for each other and i had one of those and i was really what interested was, what was it called starbase 209 which was Starbase 209, which is, not to be confused with other Starbase. Well, no, that was the area code was 209, and I thought that was okay. very clever. And I always figured if I ever wrote for Star Trek as an adult, I would slip that in there as a reference. And I think there is actually a Starbase 209 in some Star Star Trek uh, something or other. Which <laughs> oh, awesome! Hmm. But uh, yeah, so the, and I was a gigantic nerd, so it was Star, a Star Trek reference. But I, I even then I was I was really interested in. Like I would post like short stories and text file form and stuff like that. I mean, I was really interested in that combination, even then, of it, like the communication part of it. And so when I went to UCSD and I was a comm major, I mean, it wasn't one of those majors where you were doing um, you were doing 
TV production and things like that. That was not what it was. My practical writing and editing experience came at the newspaper, which wasn't for credit. We got paid a little bit, wasn't for credit, didn't have any faculty supervision at all. <laughs> um, my classes were communication theory, more or less. So it was human communication and how we misunderstand things and, and uh, how, you know, how people receive messages from the media and all sorts of stuff like that, which I found really interesting. But it wasn't you know, practical in that way. Although I have to admit, I, I think back to a lot of that you know, just as I'm doing my, my job day to day. But it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't teach me, college didn't teach me how to write a, a, a news story or write a headline. It probably made me a much more well-rounded person because I read a lot more of a lot of different stuff and I got to understand. I went to a college, UCSD split up in a bunch of different um, colleges and uh, with different general ed requirements and mine, Revell had a lot of, Technical requirements. I had to do, um, you know, a, a year plus of of chem and physics and a year of ca- of calculus and stuff like that. So I got more technical education too than maybe um, your regular journalism major <laughs> somewhere else might have gotten. And I think it was all good for me. But um, it, you know, that's not where I learned kind of my trade. That was. You know that was at the at the paper, and you know that was just literally you were just thrown in, and you had to you had to figure it out because there was nobody. I mean, your your peers might help you, but there was no faculty person sitting there and grading your stories or anything. You got graded because if your story was bad, people wrote angry letters to the paper about you. So it was interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I had a BBS. Uh, I was part of a BBS culture when I was growing up, and. Um, you know, you mentioned the fact that you've always, quote unquote, always who knows how exactly how far back that goes. But you've for most of your life, you've enjoyed writing communication, these kinds of things. I always thought that um, my involvement with BBS is was like a, it, it, it was like a supercharger for um, experience with writing, with communicating in you know prose. And did you was that was the format of your BBS or the other BBSs you participated in um did it give you a lot of practice sort of being expository to an extent that was greater than you would get at school i guess i don't know greater i don't know but i think it's true and i think it was true when i went to college and i got on usenet um the same thing that anybody who was on the internet i mean it may still be true today but it's certainly less true with podcasts and with video youtube videos and things like that there was a time when the internet was this amazing medium but the only way you could communicate on it was by writing one word after another and i think it did force a lot of people who might not otherwise have spent a lot of time trying to get their ideas across in writing um, to do so and for me it was natural because i'd been making that adjustment since uh, I was first getting on BBSs when I was in like seventh and eighth grade. That that's all there was was text. You were judged entirely by what you wrote. And if you're a 13 year old and you're writing something, they don't know you're a 13 year old, or they they might not know you're a 13 year old. It's really just the words you write and what you have to say. And that that there's great power in that. But um, you know, it's also down. You can't you can't go on your reputation or your winning smile or your uh, you know the tone of your voice. All you have are your words, and and I'm sure, I'm sure it helped a lot of people. I'm sure it helped a lot of people um, thinking that way. But it happened so early. I mean, it was just there from the start that I never really even thought about it. It was just that's just 
that's just what it was. And you know, I and I learned to type really fast too. That was part, that was part of it too. Right. As I learned, I learned to type a, a lot between posting things on BBSs and typing in basic programs out of Compute Magazine. I learned to type like 110 words a minute because I, I don't know. It was just it was like a great boot camp for for typing. Absolutely, I share that in common with you. In fact, my first significant job was uh, as a 15 year old doing data entry because. Oh, yeah. That was just what I did. I, that's how I. That's how I. I worked, did that too. That so. was that was one of my first jobs too. Was I was a, I was a first, first. I don't even know. I did data entry um, for a travel agency that like my parents knew the travel agent and I typed fast and they set me up and I just I literally literally entered in all of their customer records so that they could be computerized right. and then I did that in summers when I was in college. I was a temp. And a lot of what I did was data entry of, um, you know, for uh, companies that were getting their old records put in. So you'd literally be handed a database and a stack of files and say, put these in. Oh, Jason, it sounds painfully familiar to me. <laughs> Good <'cause> summer <laughs> times. Oh, yes. Yes. I want to take a moment to thank my sponsor this time. It's Windows Azure Mobile Services. And Windows Azure Mobile Services supplies a scalable and secure backend for your iOS app. With only a few lines of code, you can store data in the cloud, add user authentication via Facebook or Twitter, and send push notifications. Partnerships with SendGrid, Twilio, and Pusher let you send email and SMS as well. And you can add real-time functionality to the app while managing your credentials for all the services from a single pane of glass. You know, Microsoft actually has been rapidly evolving this service, uh, this suite of services over the past several months, and recently they declared general availability for the service, and it now guarantees a 99.9% uptime SLA. They've also revised the pricing, so it's really easy to understand, it's free to get started, and it scales with you as your needs for cloud services grow. Learn more about what you can do with mobile services by visiting www.windowsazure.com iOS. You know, the thing that is uh, really great about this recent change with the pricing is you can get started with it with zero commitment. And uh, I love this personally as a developer when I can take a good long look at something. Obviously, you're starting out, you're thinking, what are the various services available to me? And uh, then you you know, you know take a look at the list of features they, they uh, support. And, but finally, you know, you really want to know it's actually going to work when it comes down to it for you. And Microsoft is so confident that Windows Azure Mobile Services is going to work for you that they're willing to let you use it, not just trial it, that you can use it uh, for free at the lowest price tier level, free. Uh, yes, it has some limitations, but it's enough power to let you get a clear idea of what is available to you. And the best part is... If you start using Windows Azure Mobile Services at the free level and you decide this is going to work for you, you can just keep using it for free until your needs get to the point where you jump up to the next level. And so that's a really great proposition for anybody, especially people getting started. But, um, you know, Windows Azure Mobile Services is good for people just getting started who have relatively low needs for uh, cloud resources all the way up to enterprise level uh, clients who need to have guaranteed uptime and reliability. So consider taking advantage of Windows Azure mobile services for your iOS app. And keep in mind, it also works with other platforms as well. So if your app works on Android and Windows 8, you are set there with the same service. www.windowsazure.com iOS. 
Thank you for sponsoring the show. So I was curious about this. You, you know, I actually never ran my own BBS, um, but I was, as I said, involved in the BBS culture in my town. And there really was a culture or there were multiple cultures actually in Santa Cruz. And um, the the sort of like string of BBSs that I participated in made me a lot of friends that I would have never in a million years met, like, you know, just in school or cruising around town. I'm curious whether the... Um, the the people you knew through your BBS and the ones you the other ones you called were these people that were already connected to you your friends or was that sort did that sort of um, how how much did um, the BBSs connect you to your existing social circles versus sort of forming a new social circle for you it was a little bit of both um, Sonora being such a small town I mean. One of the reasons that I set up the BBS and and that my friend Crispin, before I had it, he had it, was um, that there wasn't anything. And you could dial, you know, the one in Oakdale or the one in Modesto or the one in Mountain View, um, but they were all long-distance calls. So you'd be on there for five minutes and then you'd not be able to call again for another week because you knew that it was going to cost a fortune. In those days, those uh, close-range toll calls were extremely expensive. Um, so, so some degree of it was my friends, definitely. And then there were, there were other people who were not in my immediate circles who found out about it because it was on a list or because there was a friend of a friend of a friend. And I met some interesting people. Uh, There were not a lot. It was not, it was certainly not a thriving group because it was such a small town. There was a, there was an older retired guy who had, I think he had like one of those little pocket computers that was, I I don't even remember what it was, uh, what the company was that made it, but it was like literally, it had a modem in it, but it was like literally the size of um, a wallet. (laughs) And I think it had like one line of text that you could read and it was, it was weird, but he was on occasionally. Um, There was a woman who was a single mom. She had an adopted son and he was a, he was a hemophiliac a whole story and she I, I looking back i think she just was desperate to try and find ways to reach the outside world because she had no time between her job and her son to meet anybody else and so as a you know 16 year old it was interesting to meet somebody you know uh 10 years older who had this very different experience from mine and then you know i don't know i mean the, the i mean the most n- notable thing was that i met my first real girlfriend on that bbs um and i am hoping to write a story a story about this for the magazine i actually pitched glenn on it and he he said it's 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 good but i haven't had a chance to write it but you know the fact was um that's where i met her she called the bbs and was posting and i thought she was really interesting and at that time i have to say it was a boys club there was the woman that i was talking about but we'd also had a couple instances of of new people come who were who were guys pretending to be girls right which is a classic oh classic bbs's the fake girls yeah um and so so this one i i we just had this happen and i i didn't believe her and she and she was very direct she was like pick up your phone and you know you could pick up the phone that the modem was on and the modem as soon as it heard you know human sounds it freaked out and it it dropped (laughs) and her modem dropped and my modem dropped oh isn't it romantic and uh and she was real and she was kind of far away, but um, but we started talking, and I mean that was that was definitely my first um, relationship 
at all. Um, and and that came out of that BBS. So yay, BBS. <laughs> what what a what a luxury too, being the one who's running the BBS to actually have the privilege of picking up the phone and talking oh, yeah. to the to the person on the other end. The downside so is people really... who didn't want the BBS who were just trying to talk to me. I had to pick up the phone and 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 whistle the carrier tone to make it drop <laughs> right. so that they could actually talk to me, which was probably bad for my social life. Otherwise, that if anybody really wanted to talk to me, they would have to deal with the squall of the <laughs> right. modem trying to talk to them that was a friend filter for sure yeah unwittingly yes <laughs> <laughs> so uh you went um you went through high school in sonora um and then you ended up going to uc san diego i think directly from yeah high school yeah straight out of high school and then uh between UC San Diego and when you went to UC Berkeley for your master's in journalism, you spent, I think, maybe just a summer or something working for your hometown newspaper, yep. the Sonora, Sonora Union Oh, Democrat. man, you are, on, you are on top of it. Yes, I was uh, the summer, a summer intern at the Union Democrat, which was my hometown paper, and I needed something to do between uh, graduating from, from uh, UCSD and starting at Berkeley, and I knew they had an internship program. It was generally open to berkeley journalism students only and between their first and second year in the the program and i basically talked them into it because i was going there and i was from sonora and they let me do it and that was great that was a, a, a summer of doing daily reporting at an afternoon daily um taught me a lot um some of it about what i didn't think i wanted to do with my career which was i think i didn't want to be a newspaper reporter um but it was a it was a good experience and and it made me prefer the a little slower pace just so that you could uh spend a little more time doing your subject a little more in depth i did, i never liked the idea that you'd come into work at seven in the morning and by eleven your stories were being on the press, and you may not have known anything about that story when you came in at seven and four hours later you were on the record and I always thought that was like cutting it a little close um of course in the end the internet means that we are all doing that after all <laughs> so it right. didn't it didn't really matter but that was what sort of sent me into being more interested in magazines than than newspapers was was that plus the subject matter i mean i i i covered the waterboard and you know wow nothing will convince you not to work for a newspaper than reporting on the waterboard can you explain that to what the water board? Water board. Oh, you mean like the board of like the water of the, pub of the public municipal? utility? Yeah. yeah, like literally, we're here to talk <laughs> about whether we're going to build a a pipeline between Pinecrest Lake and the Dodge Ridge ski area so that they can generate, um, you know, they can make snow machines. Uh, use you know, make snow with machines. Right. That was like, whew, that was cutting edge stuff. That was high drama. Well, it it would have been really exciting about. Uh, you know, 80 years earlier, if you were covering the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir. Sure, sure. But it was sadly, it was it was a, a more pedestrian time. And yeah. yes, yeah. So it was cool to having that that newspaper experience. Um, and actually, it also taught me that uh, my college newspaper was not a not a bad. It was a pretty good match for for newspaper journalism. We were not that far off, um, even though it was just a bunch of college kids. We were um it was it was actually teaching me how to do that job because when I went to the the paper, I didn't feel like I was out of my element at all. Right. 
Well, um, it was. I, I found it interesting knowing that you had written for the paper to um, revisit the the blog article you wrote after your dad passed away, and to learn that you had written the, uh, your dad's obituary for the very paper. Oh yeah. Um, that you had, you know, once worked for briefly, uh, and it's your hometown paper. It's very meaningful. Probably. Um, you know, the reason you wrote this obituary for the hometown paper is your dad practiced there for 30 years or so, and probably a lot of people knew his name. Um, it wasn't mentioned in the uh, in the obituary that this was the, the famous Jason Snell of <laughs> one summer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 20 I, I didn't get a years ago. I did, but I helped, I helped the obituary editor out, who sounded like he was 20 years old when I talked to him on the phone, because I looked up, up their style and... Uh, I was able to kind of write it to their the style so that I didn't do right. like this dramatic obituary that's like breaks all the rules. I was like, no, they they wanted they wanted yeah. to be just like this. So I I thought I'd give them a break, but that was therapeutic. I mean, I I wrote, um, I, I think I wrote that the night my dad died. I think that was one part of my kind of therapy for, um, going through that event was that that uh, an hour or two. Or maybe it was the next day. I think it was that night, though. I think it was. I think it was before. There was a there was a gap um, where um, it was unclear where we were going to go and if I was going to get my mom and what was going to happen. They were waiting for for um, for the uh, the, the uh, mortuary to come to the hospice and 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 pick up his body and and uh, so I, I literally had nothing to do for some period of time and I wrote his obituary and I you know I looked up the form and I did it and I, you know I'd been thinking right. of that I was probably going to have to do that at some point for years um, and but it was good it was a good um, it was a good uh, bit of therapy for me to get that out and to to use that uh, writing is what I do and so um, that was a way to let some of that uh, thinking out of me at a particularly stressful uh, and reflective time. Yeah, I can relate to that um, in the sense that I am not a professional writer, but I have you know some interest in writing. And for me, what what happened? You know, I I can relate to that specific situation a few years ago when my dad passed away, and I um, I felt that kind of pressure you get when you have something you want to say and it's just it might not even be the most convenient time to have to write it but it's like you just want to get this information out and um it sounds like that may have been i mean i don't know how much yeah. it was just convenient convenient that you know you had that downtime or whatever but well it was it, it was good to do it um you know the one that i felt pressure with was when we had the funeral and i was supposed to say something and that that was definitely i felt i was putting more pressure on myself for that one because there was no template for me to follow and i just had to figure that one out but the right. you know writing is therapy i mean it's true it's a thing you know and whether whether you are a professional writer or not that's one way I always joke about podcasting being therapy too. You talk out your problems. It's, Tell me more about know. that. <laughs> exactly right. Um, <laughs> and writing can be that too. So you know, yeah. and, and it definitely was for me. It's funny that that it, it came out that way, but um, but it was it was it was good. And I literally would have been just pacing around my parents' house otherwise. And instead, I got to sit down, and it sort of forced me in a very regimented way to think about my father and my father's life. And, uh, in that moment, you know, half an hour after 
uh, hearing that he had died, um, it was it was a good thing to to do, good thing to go through. Right. Well, um, Jason, you know we could probably talk a lot about your time at MacWorld and at IDG, but I think that will be covered mostly. Um, and other venues. Uh, I, I, I want to mention, though, <laughs> Suffice that, to say um, that I, I worked at Macworld for a very long time and still still do, although and still do. I do other but places, But you actually, too, yeah. I want to touch on it a little bit because it's kind of a romantic story oh. in, the, in, the tradition, in, in the classic sense of romanticism, uh, I think, that um, you started as an intern at Mac User. Yes, Right. Yep. And then, and then you worked your way to towards being a, a bona fide freelance writer and eventually a full time contributor at Mac User. And then, uh, for those of us, or th- not those of us, I, I, I do remember. For those who don't remember, um, you know, Mac User and Mac World used to kind of be like the two big Mac magazines. Oh yeah. And they were kind of, uh, you know, they're kind of like arch enemies. Arch enemies. Exactly. I'll, you say it, you said it, not me, but yeah, that sounds. Oh yes accurate especially coming from you and um ultimately Macworld ended up acquiring uh, was it that they acquired mac user alone or they acquired the whole company that mac user it was um, oh it was such a mess this was 97 and it was when the it looked like apple was about to go out of business because apple was about to go out of business right and steve jobs uh, came back and um ziff davis which owned mac user where I was an editor, I was really only, I was never a freelancer because I was in grad school. So I, I wrote a few freelance articles for them, but then they offered me a job and I, I took the job while I was still finishing up in Berkeley. So I, I never, I I never was a full-time freelancer. I just, I, I, I had my job before I even got my degree, which was kind of cool. Uh, cause I'd kind of run out of my college money that my parents had saved for me. So getting a job was a good thing. <laughs> Convenient. And, so, um, and that was, that was what, 94. So three and a half years later, uh, Apple's going down the tubes. Ziff Davis is doing Mac user and IDG has Macworld, And those two arch rival companies, the PC magazine and PC world, Mac world and Mac user. And they, neither companies executives were believers in Apple. Um, which I found is generally the case for uh, big uh, big executives uh, don't get Apple. And they get it a little more now than they did. But back then, they really didn't get Apple. And so they said, basically, let's cut our losses and save our, uh, you know, Apple's not going to be big enough. It's going down. Let's put both of our assets together in a, in a, in a pot. And it'll be uh, less damaging for us if this, if Apple just goes out of business. So... Macworld didn't buy MacUser. MacUser and Macworld assets were stuck in this new holding company that was owned 50-50 by these two arch enemies. And they laid <laughs> off half the staff of both magazines and stuck the other half of both staffs together, these arch enemies, and said, work together. So it was people whose half their coworkers had lost their jobs, and they were now forced to work with the enemy – and their company was being run by two companies that hated each other, essentially. Um, it was weird. And it was probably not the right thing to do. Uh, they probably, I keep saying this, they probably should have just laid everybody off at Mac user, including me, and let Macworld keep doing its thing. But for whatever reason, they felt it was a better idea to kind of cherry pick from both staffs. And so 
Uh, that's what they did, and I I got to come over to MacWorld then, and that was probably the most trying six to nine months of my professional life because the MacWorld people didn't welcome us, and most of them uh, were looking for other jobs, so they were not particularly focused on working with the new people. And then you know, and then it got better because they left, and that was an opportunity for me to take on more responsibility than I'd had before, and. Uh, it all worked out and you know almost nobody from that mac world of that era is still in the uh tech media business galen grumman is the who is the editor at mac world uh at the time is the editor at um info world there's almost almost nobody who was like on the staff some of the writers but whereas there are a bunch of people from mac user who are still kicking to this day so I, I think that was an interesting thing that in the end the mac user people who are the underdogs uh were also the ones who were much more passionate about writing about technology and about apple and that's your you know chris breen and 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 me and you know shawley mcfarland who still works for us and uh jim galbraith who's our lab director um roman loyola who works for MacWorld now and went he went to mac attic for a while but he was at mac user before that so a bunch of us are still around and and still kicking um but that was an interesting time that was um i don't recommend that you that you lay off two half two arch rivals sort of halfway (laughs) and then stick them together it's a bad idea well some something will happen whether it will be pretty or not (laughs) yeah and was that was that company that they that they formed was that Mac Publishing LLC. Mac Publishing, yes, exactly. Okay, and then and then like five years later, three years later, IDG just bought it out. IDG just gave Ziff Davis money. I see, and said it, we'll just take it back all the way. And that and that. So I've got a really weird. My HR file at, at IDG is very strange because I've got a start date, which is my first day at Mac user, and then I've got an IDG start date, which is a completely different date. And I think I've got a benefit start date that's different than that, and it's because <laughs> I started at Ziff and then I started at the joint venture and then i started at idg proper and they have different um like if you have dinner with the chairman of the board um that's based on your idg anniversary not your you know hr anniversary it's it's yeah it's they're just still they're still <laughs> trying to figure out what to do with this uh this intern kid from mac user who is now yeah. technically uh an executive of you're right of the <laughs> you're right i did go i did tech technically though i did go from intern to senior vice president so that's not, that's bad. not bad hey that title comes in handy when you're making a, a, a you know a broad romantic statement about the arc of a career yes that's the only time it's useful but yes <laughs> so uh um your sort of professional career is pretty straightforward as far as i can tell because you came you know as i said you got your your masters of journalism from UC Berkeley, but then you more or less have been doing, you've been working in the same job, although your commitments, I guess it's not the same job, but you've been working uninterruptedly (laughs) since then. No, I've had a bunch of different owners, a bunch of different titles. (laughs) Right. Uh, The actual name of the place that I worked changed a couple of times, but through all that, yes, it's been kind of unbroken. I haven't had to uh, you know, get a job interview and have a resume and look for a new job in 15 years. But they've kept me busy in all of that time. But it it is true. It's been, you know, I've been carried from kind of one thing to another for for a long time. So I think what um, is notable about you is you have a number of 
projects that you work on outside of, not to say that it's not notable, the work you do professionally, but um, the the sort of like looking at that in contrast to the unbrokenness of your professional work for Mac user and Mac world. Um, you've done quite a few different projects relating to your longstanding passion for fiction writing. And, um, I think your earliest published work in this realm was maybe for something called FSF net. Oh, I don't think that's right. Um, I saw, ha, now, now I've you've got, got you. me. Yeah. No. So I, I, um, when I was in college, there were a couple internet magazines that back when there was nothing on the internet, you could literally create something that didn't exist on the internet, uh, which is impossible to even imagine now. And so I was in a couple of, I was in those magazines. I, I had some short stories published in Quanta, uh, which was done by a guy named Dan Apple, Applequist. And uh, Athene, which was another internet magazine by a guy named Jim McCabe. Uh, and it was mostly just stuff that I had written in, in high school or early in college. And um, and then McCabe shut down Athene and I started Intertext um, as a replacement because there wasn't a fiction magazine that wasn't... Quanta was limited to sci-fi. Um, and I thought... I. I in what would be the only time this would ever happen, I think, I realized that there was nothing serving this need on the internet and somebody needed to create something, so I did. Um, and so I did Intertext for like 50 issues or so over the course of about 10 years, and that was one of my, that was my first side project. That was my, while I was in college, I started it, and that was my side project for a while. And then I did TV, and then I did uh, The Incomparable after that. I've always got something something on the side to do that's not quite part of my job and gives me a, a creative outlet but back then it was you know I, I was writing a lot of short stories back then and then i stopped but um in college i i did a lot of that and so i ended up doing this fiction magazine where people were sending me stories most of them terrible and i had to read them and judge them and uh, edit them the ones that were good and publish them and i did that like i said for about 50 issues with it was actually not a lot not a lot different from the magazine that Marco and Glenn right. have done. It was sort of four or five stories. Uh, it, it was every other month and it was short fiction, but it had a when the, when Marco announced the magazine I was like this sounds sort of familiar to something I did in 1990, but the technology was really not far along back then. And at, and in that role as the, you know, you you start the the magazine, so obviously you're sort of the editor in chief, um but you, your role as editor of that, I think was sort of predating um, you having those kinds of editorial responsibilities for Mac user or for Mac world. Is that right? Oh yeah, yeah. I started Intertext when I was a junior in college, when I was the news editor at the at the newspaper. And I, for some reason, I thought that being the news editor of the newspaper and carrying a full load of classes was not enough, <laughs> <laughs> and I needed another project. And that was that was it. But this is a pattern that's repeated in my in my life, which is having some sort of alternate creative outlet. That's not the down to business, you know, job part of my job, but is the other thing that I do. That's more creative. That's almost like a hobby, except my hobby is so close in so many ways to what I do for a living that from the outside, it seems like I'm just doing more things, more work, but um, it's probably analogous to having a hobby and intertext was my hobby for a while before tv and then the incomparable 
And TV was a blog um, where you... Before they called it a blog. Before they called it yes. a blog, uh, you were writing about television. Uh, yeah, it was, it was me and a bunch of friends from college, essentially. And we did that starting in about 95, 96. Um, at the height, it probably we were probably posting three, four, five things a week. Uh, and, and a lot of those people, it's Philip Michaels, who writes for Macworld, Lisa Schmeiser. Um, a lot of the people who are on The Incomparable now, Steve Letts, Monty Ashley... Um, and uh, and then some other some other people who aren't on the podcast, but but wrote a lot for that side. Greg Noss um, is an example of somebody who's on both. And that was yeah, that was a it was basically writing about TV. Although we it was mostly meant to be humorous, um, and that was fun too because that's stay in touch with your friends from college, right? In a creative in a creative, you're basically most of them from the college newspaper in a creative. Uh, place on the internet in the early days of the, of the web where we were you know we we were sending we were writing about tv and emails to each other and it was really funny and i said we should put this on the internet and so we did i mean it was there wasn't a whole lot to it and we did that for a while and then as the is the case with a lot of these projects everybody gets older and gets jobs and responsibilities and the the uh you know the amount of content we post reached a peak and then started to go down the other side and at some point it, we just sort of stopped it's pretty cool, though, that there's a kind of arc there from the college through this pre-blog blogging to what, you know, you, you, can, you can draw that line directly to your current completely active uh, podcast, The Incomparable, where, as you said, you're sort of geeking out with some of these same people about yeah it's it, it's some people I, i've known from the last 10 years of doing tech publishing and then a bunch of people i went to college with um and they are essentially that's what the panel of the incomparable <laughs> is so so it's like a bunch of the people from tv greg noss ben boychuk steve lutz uh, lisa schmeiser um and uh and then a bunch of people i i have worked with or have known over the years from the you know kind of the mac world like dan morin and serenity caldwell and scott mcnulty and john syracusa and you know and 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 many many others but uh you can draw you can absolutely draw a line from from tv which started in 95 through the incomparable and i think you could really draw it all the way back to uh to intertext which started in 90 and you could probably draw it back even further to like that bbs and the things i was writing there so (laughs) you know there i don't know i i didn't realize i was being that consistent but i think i probably my side project thing has probably been a thing um all along so you said that um, you used to write a lot more short fiction. Um, since I've known you, the past, you know, gosh, it's you know, it's been a while now, actually, five, six, maybe seven years. Um, I have known you uh, for many of those years to be ambitious in the realm of novel writing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's what I did. I, I'd never written anything over about 15,000 words, and then I did NaNoWriMo one year, National Novel Writing Month, where you write 50,000 words in, in 30 days, which I'm on the board of directors of now. <laughs> that happened. That was kind of kind of crazy. Um, and so I signed up for it, and uh, I did it, and I wrote 50,000 words, and I signed up late, too, so in like 25 days, and it was like the first part of a novel. Uh, and I thought, well, I, this is great, but it's not done. I have more plot. And so the next February, I wrote another thirty or 40,000 words. And then the following November for NaNoWriMo, again, I wrote another 50, 55,000 words. 
And so that was that's a, a first draft of a novel. And then the next two years, I wrote two 50,000-word chunks that formed another 100,000-word novel. And the next two years, I did the same thing again. So I, I didn't do it this last year um, for lots of reasons, including my mom going in the hospital. But I also have three novel drafts sitting around, and I kind of want to work on them and get them out in the world rather than write you know, a fourth. <laughs> it's like that's it's kind of too much. Um, but that's been a lot of fun and whether they ever see the light of day, I'm really going to, I'm going to self-publish at least one of them just to see what happens. But, um, the most recent one, but it's been great in the sense, and this is why I joined the board and I'm a real believer in the whole NaNoWriMo idea is it's like saying you're going to run a marathon a lot or climb a mountain. A lot of people say, yeah, one day I'd like to write a novel and they never do it because it's too much. And when are they going to do it? And what NaNoWriMo does is you put a stake in the ground and say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write in just in November for 30 days. I'm going to write, I think you do the math. It's an average of like 1,700 words a day. And at the end of it, you've got 50,000 words, which technically is not novel length. It's kind of novella length, but close enough. And the fact is, that was the thing. Just taking that time, that was the thing that did it. And at the end, I said, I, I wrote a novel. And... uh if it never sees the light of day, I would still be happy because it was a thing that I'd always said that I wanted to do and I was never going to do it. And my wife was very kind in letting me hide and with the door closed in the evenings in the month of November and, uh, and, and write that novel. But, uh, but it was a great creative experience. I, I don't read novels the same way now because I've seen what it's like from the other side. <laughs> and uh, I, so I get these moments where I'm like, oh, I see what's going on here, which is, it's really kind of cool to see that happening. So, so yeah, I went from short stories to novels and, you know, with an inter- interim period there where I didn't write any fiction at all. Well, what I like about um, NaNoWriMo, and I learned recently that they have a, a little bit more uh, eloquent name for the, for the organization, the Office of Letters and Light. Um, yeah, yeah. Although I think we're going back to Nana. Are you? Oh, probably. Okay. Yeah. I, I kind of like that because you could, you oh, can say it. Well, well, it's n- <laughs> nice, but nobody, but nobody knows what it is, yeah. and everybody knows what NaNoWriMo is, or at least more people. Understand? Well, yeah. is a you know, it is a nice office. I've been there. It's got there's lots of light. It's in Berkeley. Oh well, obviously it's nice. But uh, what I like about it, and what I like about their their mission, is exactly what you're sort of describing. Um, it's really hard to write a novel, and I think most people it's on it it's is. on their sort of bucket list being oblivious to the fact that, as with most things in life, in order to do something well, you first have to do it kind of poorly, right like it's okay right. to do a bad to write a bad novel in fact, you probably have to write a bad novel, yeah, oh yes. before you can oh, write yes. it, if you have the hope of writing a good novel before you die. Then Absolutely. you better get to work on the bad ones now. Right? You, you got it. You got it exactly right. Uh, the guy who started NaNoWriMo is a guy named Chris Beatty, and he's a he's a really he's a great guy. He's uh, got a really positive attitude, and he wrote a, he wrote a book about NaNoWriMo and about the process of, of of trying to be a writer and write a lot of words. And he called it "No Plot, No Problem," <laughs> <laughs> and it's all and that's what NaNoWriMo. A lot of it is is, is strategies to keep going and pep talks and. Uh, support and tools to keep you on pace uh, and the most I would say the most important thing about it is the idea there to turn off your inner editor to suppress your inner, inner editor because what people do 
is they procrastinate. And one of the ways they procrastinate is by laboring over their sentences. And they write a sentence. They're like, oh, it's not perfect. Maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. And the trick with NaNoWriMo, the trick that NaNoWriMo teaches you, which is, believe it or not, basically how professional writers work, is always move forward. Keep writing. If there's something you really don't like, strike through and then keep writing. Don't tinker. Write it all the way through. Just keep the words coming. And when it's all said and done, you can go back and you can edit it. But that's for another time. This is not the editing portion. This is the, you know, one word follows another. And if you do that enough times, at the end, you've got a novel. But if you keep doubling back and questioning yourself, you're never going to get there. And it's a great frame of mind to be in. And once you get in it, it, it makes that, that impossible thing possible. And yeah, some of it will be bad and some of it will be good. But I found I got better as I went by far. And then the more times I did it, the better, you know, I I felt like I got better and I learned a whole lot. Um, You know, it was a great experience. I I mean, I do liken it. It's the lazy person's or at least physically inactive person's equivalent to climbing a mountain or running a marathon (laughs) to say, I'm going to do this or running a 5K even. It's like, I'm going to write a novel and and anybody can do it. I, I can't guarantee it'll be good. But anybody can do it. Right. And well, the bottom line is all the people who are doing it without the help of NaNoWriMo, vast majority of those aren't good either. So it's not like you're going to oh, be yeah. in, it's not like you're going to be in, uh, you know, in some kind of like <laughs> minority company if you write a bad novel. Um, no, no, it's, it's, it's exactly right. In Stephen King's book on writing, he details his process. And the fact is, he writes it through. And then he sticks it in a drawer for a little while. And then he comes back and he revises it. But he writes it through. That's what you got to do. That's what the pros do. They don't, they don't tinker with it as they go because they know they're never going to get – they're never going to be productive that way. You just got to let it flow and then you come back to it later. Yeah. And it's a little – you know, it's secrets of writing that, you know, it, once, I, once I figured that out, I thought, oh, okay. And then it made it – it really made it possible. Well, one of the, one of the other great things that um, NaNoWriMo is doing is they're trying to involve young writers. And um, that's especially yes. important, I think, to get people – involve if you know if you, if you if you start with this premise that you have to practice you have to get sort of through the mental block of th- seeing yourself as a novelist let's say um then getting them to get past that block earlier is a good step towards uh improving the odds of having a great you know ha- having somebody's great writing potential revealed um, something that reminds me of, of course, is the interview I did two weeks ago with Jean McDonald about the uh, about her app camp for girls. App camp for girls, yeah. And it's sort of a similar um, premise, putting people in in the state of mind of seeing themselves as powerful in a certain realm. You know, like saying, "Yeah, you can do this." And it's it, yeah, you're not. I don't think she has any of these young girls coming to camp under the illusion that they're going to be expert app developers at the end of one week. Um, but just the idea of getting something started and being able to iterate on something is so important. There are a lot of people who don't think of themselves as creative or don't think they should allow themselves to be creative. And I think one of the nice things that the Young Writers Program that NaNoWriMo does it, 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 you know, one of, one of the nice things it does is um, give kids the license to be creative and say, you are going to invent a story and you are going to, to write, write a novel or write a, a short story or whatever the length is. And you are going to, you know, it's not, 
it's not a secret. We're going to give you the tools and we're going to let you do this thing. And that's so powerful just to, to, to give people license to do that and say, this isn't something that only certain kinds of people can do. You can try it too. And not everybody's going to be a professional writer, but you know, there, there's no uh, test you have to pass before you allow yourself to try and tell a story. And, um, and I, I think that's, I think that's similar to what, what's going on with app camp for girls where you're saying, you know, there's no, you can do this too. You can be one of these people too. You don't need to look at it and say, boy, how do you become that? You just, here's some tools to let you do it. Just be this. You can be it too. Well, that's uh, I, I like that you, um, you summed that up with like, you can tell a story because I think that's been an important part of your life. Um, obviously we opened this interview talking about, um, some stories you've told about your personal background, about your dad's life, and even summarizing your dad's life as a story. Um, uh, it seems to me that a journalist by trade and by education has to be sort of obsessed with narrative and story. Um, I think that's probably kind of what makes you, um, so talented in the tech sphere because you know a lot of people come into the tech sphere with uh interest in the gadgets and interest in what the latest whiz bing whiz bang features are but without some some sense of a narrative and a story it's it's hard to make that interesting to the public um well you can have i mean narratives can be good and bad i mean we Anybody who's followed Apple for long enough knows that that the press often will find a narrative or stick things in a narrative, even if it doesn't make any sense. The whole, whole like Apple doesn't have any ideas since Steve Jobs died kind of narrative. I mean, there are lots of there are lots of ways you can tell stories that aren't true, but they're still narratives. I, I think what I'd say is, um, and it's very kind of you to to put all that together and say nice things about me. But um, uh, what I'd say is, I think what I'm drawn to. And what I think is really important is the idea of an audience and thinking of a reader and trying to trying to tell trying to communicate to them whether you're telling a story or whether you're explaining something. And I think um, I think that that um, that's always what I try to, to to strive for. And I think it's important for writers to strive for is is trying to impart something for who's the person who's reading what they're writing. And it's very easy to write, whether you're writing a product review or a news story or whatever, to have it just be about your personal issues right? <laughs> and not about sort of the bigger picture. And I know this, Andy Anako did a thing on his podcast a while back about this that, that really rings true. And it's the same idea that... Um, that uh, there are a lot of people who do great work writing very idiosyncratic things about what they care about. Um, and that's good. But um, a lot of what I do is trying to uh, look at something technical and then explain it to somebody who is interested in it, but may not be interested in all the technical details. They're just in- interested in what that what the outcome of those details is. And that can be a challenge, but... Um, it, when done right, that's very fulfilling to be able to say, even to review a product and say, look, this product isn't for me. I wouldn't want to buy this product. But who would who would be interested in it? What is it good for? And writing about that too. And 
you know, I don't know. That's that's not quite the same thing as 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 the narrative. I think that's a part of it, but I think it's also it, it's not just telling a story. It's who knowing who you're telling it to, and making being attuned to uh, what their needs are, and then trying to fulfill them. Um, you know, and it's not they need to be told everything's going to be okay. If it's not, they need to be told lies. But it is what are they looking for? What information do they want? Um, and trying to provide what they're looking for, and not the stuff that that they don't care about. So not every not sense. every tech uh, not every tech story has to have a, a happy ending. <laughs> no, definitely, <laughs> definitely not. not. There are a lot of horror. There are a lot of horror stories, and when it comes to tech, uh, the tech industry and tech products, there's a lot of. Uh, tales of misguided uh, creators very frankenstein like tales of of people i mean it's not that different from making a product i mean you know as a as a software developer um that that there are lots of products out there good and bad and one of the reasons a product can be bad is that the product isn't clear who's going to use it and they haven't kept the user in mind it's much more developer oriented the developer is building something in a way that seems logical for the developer but they've lost track of the person on the other end who's using it. And in my mind, that's, you know, that's one of the easiest things to separate a good product from a bad product. And the same is true for a, for a, an article, for a story, for a podcast, for anything else is if you lose track of who you're talking to, um, then you're in trouble because you know, you may be just doing it for yourself and, and not, it, it may not be something that anybody else wants at that point. Right. Well, Jason, I think uh, that's a pretty good place for us to wrap this up. Um, you have told us an interesting story here, so thank you for sharing uh, sharing so much uh, about your background with us. Um, folks, if you want to catch up with Jason, he is uh, on Twitter at jsnell. Uh, he also has his own podcast on the 5x5 network, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash incomparable. Um, he has done a, an admirable job of keeping many of his past projects available online in archive form. You can find some of that stuff, for example, at intertext.com. And uh, based on that same domain, he has a more modern, up-to-date, kept, you know, continually updated blog at jsnell.intertext.com. Jason, is there anything else uh, apart from those things I mentioned that you want to share with our listeners before we wrap this up? Um, and then he woke up and it was all just a dream. <laughs> well, the end, the end, you know, he's, you know, he does see folks. He is a master of his craft. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jason, it's been really fun, uh, talking to you and, uh, I, I really, uh, I hope you, uh, continue to, uh, iterate on your novels and, all the other projects you're working on. It's great, uh, great work you're doing both for IDG and your podcast and the stuff you do for NaNoWriMo. So uh, thanks a lot for all that stuff you're doing. I enjoy your work and I'm sure many of my listeners do too. It's been a great, uh, great pleasure having you on the show. You're very kind, Daniel. Thank you for inviting me on BitSplitting. It's been, uh, it's been an honor to be here. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, Jason. This has been Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalkut and Jason Snell. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review or rating in the iTunes podcast directory. You can find links and other show notes at the podcast homepage, bitsplitting.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening. 